I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. For us, the image of grapevines may recall pleasant memories of vineyards and rolling hills in Paso Robles, for example, on a warm but breezy July afternoon in the company of dear friends. For the disciples, though, in addition to whatever positive sense this may have brought, the image of a vineyard and of vines might not have been all that immediately comforting even so, because it invoked, for them, a familiar and painful scriptural image. In the Psalms, for instance, the poet remembers how the Lord, quote, uprooted a vine from Egypt, drove out nations and transplanted it, cleared the ground for it, it took root, and it filled the land. Yet the psalmist also immediately asks a question of lament to God, asking, quote, Why then did you break down its walls so that all who pass by pluck its fruit? The wild boars of the forest ruin it. The insects of the field feed on it. The answer to this question comes from the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, who chides the nation of Israel, asking, quote, Why in the world have you turned my vine into a wild vine that produces rotten and foul-smelling grapes? The prophet Ezekiel adjoins this, elaborating and declaring that the people have acted unfaithfully, and that because of this self-inflicted and awful mutation of a good vine into a feral vine, the Lord has pronounced his judgment against them. Quote, like the wood of the vine is among the trees of the forest that I have provided as fuel for fire, so I will provide the residents of Jerusalem as fuel. I will set my face against them. Although they have escaped from the fire, the fire will still consume them and I will make the land desolate. The image of the vine reveals the deliberate care with which God created Israel. He made a place for the people that was special to him among all the peoples of the earth so that those other peoples could see what he had done for them and be drawn together with them in worship of God. The vine brought out of Egypt was planted to be a lush vineyard garden. But the image of the vine also reveals how Israel forsook its calling, how they abandoned their good beginning in favor of their own wild hearts. They forgot God. They forgot what he had done for their ancestors. They served instead every impulse of each moment, serving themselves, the nations, and false gods. Like branches severed from the trunk, they no longer had communion with the roots and thus no water or nutrients. And so they withered and became dry branches, littering the ground, incapable of bearing any fruit, and useful only to consume a fire or to produce a fire for a brief moment. Jesus' words, however, redeem this image of the vine. 
A metaphor of sin and judgment becomes in the mouth of the word of God a sign of healing and of new life. Through it, he reveals that he is the true vine that was at the beginning of Israel, that he was the life that gave their people life all the way back then, and that he will make it possible once more to abide in the life of the vine, to become again the Lord's lush vineyard for the sake of their glory and for a sign to all the nations to come and see. The ultimate goal of this was so that Israel would bear good fruit that would show the nations of the world the Father in heaven and say the truth about him. As Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is honored by this, that you bear much fruit and show that you are my disciples. St. Paul meditates deeply on these words, seeing how the gospel, which calls us to unity with God as branches in a vine, is the foundation for our call to unity as Christians, one with each other, that that vertical horizon is the thing that gives meaning to the horizontal unity that we're all called to together. To do this, he takes up his own image, the image of a body. The body is the image of the church. The head of the body is Jesus. He directs and gives life to the body. The spirit is the soul and the form of the body. Jesus has been revealed as the head through the gospels and in the preaching of his apostles. But the fullness of the body of Christ, the church, will only be revealed as each person who is called to belief in Christ to receive his words are made alive again and revealed to be what part of the body they are. And they are to be a true part of Christ's body as they each assume their unique role that each new believer is called to perform in that body. As the soul of a person animates all members down to the tips of their fingers, all in the church are gifted by the Spirit to do that good work for the church body. And no part of the body is exactly like any other in form or function. The, even the two hands, which look so much alike, are not identical to each other. The revealing of the body is fulfilled as each part begins to do what it alone is called to do, designed to do, in harmony with all the other parts. With Jesus the head holding all the body in union and moving the whole body together in union with the Spirit towards the Father. At the end of all things, when the full body is made manifest, Christ the head will lead that body to the Father who will embrace his Son and all of his body, the church, in an embrace of love. And that is what the glory at the end will be. St. Paul reminds us that with such a grand vocation that each of us are called to, to participate in this thing, that we shouldn't worry about which part of the body we aren't, but rather listen to Jesus, who will tell us what part of the body we are and will give us the power of the Spirit to do what only that part can do.
But what do these pictures of vines and bodies have to do with St. Mark, whose feast day we're celebrating today? As an evangelist, as someone called to a task, St. Mark's unique call and role in the body was to show everyone Jesus. His account of Jesus, likely the recording of St. Peter's eyewitness testimony, provides us with a way to be introduced to Jesus as he was known by those who knew him best. The Gospels, in this way, shepherd our encounter with Jesus. They call us to meet him as his closest followers knew him, returning us continually to the things that Jesus said and did so that we become more familiar with him over time. The goal of the evangelist is always to point us beyond the writing itself to the person who makes those writings meaningful. The scriptures point us to Christ, who in turn shows us the fullness of the Father in the teaching of the Spirit. The scriptures show us that God is a relationship and is at the heart of who he is. And the evangelists reflect this in their own gospel message. This is one of the reasons why there are four Gospels in the Bible, and not just one. This, they each tell us something about Jesus that the others do not. And together, the evangelists reveal Jesus in a way that none of them can do alone. There are four accounts, and this is not an accident of repetition in the Gospels. This is not a way of looking ahead down the line of generations to account for differences of literary taste in the audience. The diversity and difference of each gospel reflects the unity and diversity of the body of Christ, of the whole church. As each one speaks his own account, each evangelist points us to the other gospel writers who say it in their way, too. We cannot understand who Jesus is. to prefer one at the expense of all the in a fellowship where we don't cut off anyone, where we see them in this way the scriptures become again for us properly iconic they are where we can safely go to meet Jesus. But like good servants, the evangelists always direct us beyond their words to the word himself. As Christians, we don't have eternal life if we partake only intellectually with a literary figure in an ancient text. We don't have eternal life if we only associate culturally with a historical persona. We only have eternal life if we commune with Jesus as he knows himself to be, and as he began to show his chosen apostles and evangelists. That Jesus is this person we will continue to know more fully forever with greater depth makes more remarkable that this is also the same Jesus who comes to us this morning in the Eucharist to commune with us. Our readings at the beginning of church, our sermon each time, all of this is the beginning of what must give way to an encounter. As St. Luke teaches us, he is truly known in the opening of the scriptures. 
But Christ must also be known in the breaking of the bread as he extends his life to us through the sacrament to become our life, to integrate us into the vine if we'll receive him. In this way, we abide in the true vine and have life. In this way, we receive the words of Jesus and are able to produce good fruit. The head moves us as the body because he becomes again our source of life. It is for this essential encounter with Jesus that we gather today. Communion with Christ in the Eucharist is the beginning of life and time for us every week. Jesus is very eager to meet each of us, whether it has only been a few days since we last saw him, whether we come to him now for the first time, or whether we come back to him now having strayed away for a long time. What matters most today is that he comes to meet us as he truly is. And he calls us in turn to meet him as we really are. The fruitfulness of the work we go on to do the rest of the week depends on this. And without this, the rest of the week begins to wither and die. So much of the Christian life ultimately is found in this. That we say yes to Christ, who draws nearer to us, to draw us nearer to him. To stay near him, and near him to stay near to all those he has also drawn near him and that we refuse in the rest of our time to be led away or to depart from him. The Lord is near, the scriptures say, so stay close. As Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.